Man, 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 man. Thank you for being here today. This is the first Sunday in uh, 2015, and you made a good decision by coming to God's house. If this is one of your New Year's resolutions to be in church every Sunday in the year 2015, you've got a perfect record so far. That, that's awesome. Just just keep it that way, all right? We're going to be in 1 John chapter 2 today. Uh, we call that Little John. It's near the end of your Bible, right before the book of Revelation, 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to read three verses, 15 through 17, and uh, then we're going to pray. I want you to pray for the Seabolt family. Uh, Miss Bell Seabolt uh, went to heaven, and there is rejoicing in heaven today. What a great Christian lady who leaves a tremendous legacy of the Christian faith. You pray for her family, especially for her husband George. The funeral will be here Wednesday at 2 o'clock. So be praying for this family. Here we are in 1 John chapter 2. This is what John says in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. Lord, I truly pray today that as I try to speak this on the outside, that your Holy Spirit would speak it on the inside. Help us to have a, a great resolve today and this year to live the will of God in our life. So speak to us today, dear Lord. Uh, may your spirit be real in this place, and may there be a, a holy anointing that comes over us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Of all the good and important things we can do and accomplish in 2015, the most important is for you to live for God. All right? More than anything else is for you to live for God and to do His good, acceptable, and perfect will. So, if you have already made your New Year's resolutions, you might reconsider and put living God's will at the very top of your list. That's really what this whole passage is about. So, uh, barring any other introduction, I'm going to get right into the message and the first point. Are you ready? Oh, goodness. Are you ready? Because here we go. One simple command that is given here that we need to follow. And this commandment, I believe, should be inscribed on the interior wall of our hearts. It is a five-word injunction, and it says this, Do not love the world. That is God's commandment to His followers and to His church. Do not love the world. Soon after a person becomes a Christian, he or she discovers that being a Christian is not a bed of roses. Rather, it's quite a battle. And it is a lifelong struggle. The Christian life is a struggle against formidable enemies. In fact, a child of God has three specific enemies he has to face every day. There is an external enemy. It's called the world. There is an internal enemy called the flesh. And let's not forget the infernal enemy behind it all, 
His name is the devil. John warns us here about that external enemy. He calls it the world. Verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now what John is saying very simply is this. It is impossible for you to love two exact opposites at the same time. And he gives us the opposites. There is the world on one hand and God on the other. And they are diametrically opposed to one another. And John very simply is saying, you can't love God and love the world at the same time. It doesn't work that way. In fact, Jesus put it like this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot, okay, that's, that's pretty emphatic, you cannot serve both God and mammon. It can't be done. So you can't straddle the fence, guys. You can't, you can't be living for God on Sunday and for the devil the rest of the week. It doesn't work that way. And we are exhorted from the Word of God not to love this world. Now, if you've been around church any length of time, you've heard this term, worldliness. Worldliness is one of the problems not only of the modern church, I believe it, is, it, is, it has haunted the church since its inception. It plagues our churches and keeps us from having the power of God that we need. It robs us of our spiritual effectiveness and it ruins our witness for the Lord. And to speak of a worldly Christian is a great misnomer. In fact, I believe that Billy Sunday the evangelist was correct when he said, it makes no more sense to talk about a worldly Christian than it does to talk about a heavenly devil. And I am convinced that many of those we call worldly Christians just aren't Christians at all. Let me put it like this. If I see a bird that looks like a duck and quacks like a duck and waddles like a duck, I get the idea that such a bird is probably a duck. If I see a person who acts like the world and lives like the world and loves the world and is part of the world, then I am driven to certain inevitable conclusions that that person is probably of the world. And from the Word of God, we can understand what worldliness is. And I really believe that a lot of Christians who dabble in the world and allow the world to, to flux into their lives really would not be worldly if they knew what the world really was. And if they knew what the world is doing to them and how the world operates and where the world is going, they wouldn't want any part of it. Does it sound like I'm mad? I'm really not mad. I'm just preaching hard because this is a hard passage. All right, But understand, this is coming from a heart of love. Okay? We need to be confronted with truth every once in a while, church. And the truth is this. The world is not your friend. And you need to avoid worldliness. 
So what does John mean when he says, do not love the world? Well, I'll tell you what he's not talking about. He's not talking about the world of nature. He's not talking about flowers and trees, mountains and seas. Nor does John mean the world of humanity. He's not telling us that, that, that we are not to love the people of the world. Because over in Big John, chapter 3, verse 16, the same exact word is used when it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. In that passage, John tells us that God loves the world. That is, God loves the whosoevers of the world. God loves people. You know what? So should we. As His ambassadors, we are to love people just as God loves people. But in 1 John chapter 2, it is referring to the character of this world, to this world's philosophy, to the value system of this world. So when the Bible tells us, do not love the world, it is talking about the arrangement of things or a system that is totally opposed to God. It is this world's system that put Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus said in John 15 verse 19, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. This world is not a friend to God's children. It's not a friend to try to help us build a relationship with God. This world is our enemy. This world is our antagonist. The world system wants to keep us away from God. And it wants to rob us of the blessings that God wants to give us. Worldliness, therefore, is anything. Anything that keeps you from loving God the way you ought to love God. Anything that keeps you from serving God the way you ought to serve God. Anything that comes between you and God and keeps you from living the Christian life. That's what worldliness is. You know what? It, it begs us, church, at this particular point, just to do a quick time out and do a personal inventory in our own life. This passage begs us to ask ourselves the question, is there anything that I'm involved in right now? whether it be a relationship or whether it be an activity, is there anything that I'm doing right now in my life that I don't feel at ease with before God? And if there is an affirmative in your mind, if there's something that you can identify that, you know what, you just don't feel easy every time you do that or look at that or involve yourself in whatever it is, you just kind of get this sick feeling at your stomach and you think something, you know what, if that is the case, you need to quit it. Bottom line, stop doing it. A pretty good axiom for the child of God is this, if in doubt, don't. John actually goes on to define his usage of this word world. And he really talks about the three traps that, that the world is trying to use to snare us. 
And these are three traps that we need to avoid. Understand the devil's behind all of this. And so every day, he is setting these traps in your path. And these traps are specifically designed to trip you up, to snare you. And so he is saying, avoid these three traps and dangers. The first danger is the lust of the flesh. For all that is in the world, he says, the lust of the flesh. And that really is a pretty literal translation. In the original, John uses a three-word phrase. And the first word it means a strong impulse or desire. It has to do with hunger and appetites and craving. I'm kind of getting hungry right now. Okay? I didn't eat much of a breakfast. I don't on Sunday morning. So about this time, as soon as this service is I get real, my body starts craving food. Okay? And if I go very long in the afternoon, it really starts craving for food. Alright? And that's where, where this word comes from. It's translated lust, but that's what it means. A desire, an appetite, a craving. The middle word is a definite article, meaning of thee. And then the last word is flesh. It's talking about your body, your, your human existence. Literally, this phrase is the desires or the appetites or the cravings or the desires or the drives of the flesh. John is warning us about any physical desire that becomes a dominant driving force in our lives so that our actions are dictated by our appetites rather than by the Lord. Our flesh, our body starts craving things and we just can't stop it or say no to it. Now when you hear the word lust, you typically think of, of, of a sexual connotation with that, don't you? Lusting after something. Well, let, let me just run with that for a second. Because God is the one who created sex in the first place, right? And when He made it, it was a good thing. Uh, I've started reading the Bible over again. I have my little daily plan, and I've been reading in the book of Genesis. God made uh, man and woman, Adam and Eve, and, and it goes on to tell us that, that Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and, and had the first son. You know, that was one of the reasons God gave sex to mankind, is to reproduce, to have children. But it's something special between a man and a woman. Within the bonds of what God has drawn as the perimeters, sex is something really beautiful and really great. But it has to stay within those confines. It's something God gave. He gave it for to one man and to one woman to be enjoyed through their lifetime. And it's just for one man, one woman together forever to be enjoyed. Anything outside of that box and that confine is wrong. It's sin. And understand what I said. One man, one woman. United together forever. It, it changes from lust at that point to love. But anything that steps outside of that whether it is an adulterous relationship or a, or a homosexual relationship, is a craving of the flesh. And it will destroy you. That lust of the flesh goes on to, to include all kinds of things. It, it can even be food that we're craving and lusting after. And it comes before our relationship with God. It could be something as innocent as exercise, if that becomes your God. 
The second danger to the soul is the lust of the eyes. These are temptations that come to us through the gateway of our eyesight. And they can include anything from pornography to materialism. And it all happens when we allow things to come through the windows of our soul, which is our eyeballs, and filter into our mind and even down into our soul. That's why you have to be so very careful to pay attention to what your little eyes see. Be careful, little eyes. Every morning I pray the prayer, Lord, I give, I give every part of my body back to God, starting with my mind. Lord, help me to think on holy thoughts. Okay, I want to thank God thoughts today. And then I go to my eyes. Lord, help me to look at only the things you want me to look at today. Because I know how it can be, man. If we look at things that we shouldn't be looking at, it can destroy us. It is so important for you to watch out for what you look at. Let me, let me describe it like this. Have you ever been, let's say, in church, sitting here, trying to listen to me preach, which I know is a difficult thing, but you're just sitting here, and all of a sudden you have this bizarre thought that comes into your mind that is so anti-church and so anti-God, you just can't believe you just had that thought or saw that picture in your head, and you thought, where'd that come from? Yeah, okay, Jason and I are the only one that's going to admit that happens to us. The rest of you are just, you're afraid to admit it, but I know it happens. Something sinful just comes through your mind. Where'd that come from? Well, I'll tell you where it came from. You let it into your mind through what you saw or read or looked at through your eyes. And it didn't just pass through your body and go away. It got stuck up here, guys. And he is saying one of the dangers, one of the snares that the devil uses is the lust of the eyes. You see something and you start craving after it. Then he goes on to talk about the third danger, it's the pride of life. That means boasting of who we are or what we can accomplish. It's the, the, the me factor. Recently, a polling firm took a survey of school children. These are little bitty kids. And they asked these kids to name the best things in the world. What are the greatest things in the world? The very first item on the top of the list was being a celebrity. That's what these kids thought was the greatest thing in the world, to, to grow up and be a celebrity. The second thing was to have good looks, and the third thing was to be rich. The one-word answer for God did make the list. It came in number 10. This is the pride of life, and it has so seeped into our world so as to saturate even the minds of our little kids. Just look at the magazines and tabloids at the checkout counter at the grocery store next time you go. Everything about them is about pleasure and possessions and sex and money and fame and good looks and celebrities. You've got to understand, those are the controlling aspects of our society today. And as a church, we have internalized those values. We have allowed the world to seep into us. The devil is constantly trying to lure us out of God's will. And he's going to use these three traps to do it. You know, this world says be tolerant. They preach tolerance. They demand tolerance. Yet they are tolerant of everything except God. 
the word of faith and the Christian life. They become intolerant when it comes to that. And, and here's the crux. Here's the thing that kills me. We have allowed that mindset, that worldly philosophy to creep into our own life where we become tolerant of everything the world offers. And what we do is begin justifying the things that we want to do that are not right to do. We begin to give in and to cave in to these cravings. The lust of the flesh, the, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Very quickly, notice with me the, the two warnings that come after this. Two warnings to remember. The first warning is that these traps are not from God. Church, these traps are not from God. Look at the verse again. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world is not of the Father, it's of the world. N none of this is from God. Can I tell you something? God, God doesn't want to destroy your life. God wants good things for you. God wants to bless you. God wants to build you up. God wants you to spend eternity in heaven with Him. These traps are meant to destroy you. So pull the blinders off of your eyes. Understand the motive behind this is to destroy your life. It's not from God. God doesn't want that from you, for you. I'll never forget the, the conversation I had with a guy years ago in a different church. He, he was married, had a, a wife and kids. He was having a, a, an affair, committing adultery with a woman who was also married and who had a family herself. He was sleeping with her. And he had the audacity to say, it's God's will for me to leave my wife and my children and live with this other woman. It may be the will of the God of this world, but it's not the will of the God of heaven for you to do that. Because you see what he's doing? He is destroying not only his own life, but that of his family. And another family. God's not into that. God's not into destroying. He's into building up. Can I rant and rave just for a second? Because I'm feel, I feel it coming on. I mean... I can remember as a little bitty kid growing middle. I had this preacher that preached hellfire and brimstone every Sunday. He just got used to it. But he used to talk about the devil's horns in your living room. And what he was talking about is the TV with the antenna on the top. I used to think that was pretty funny and I laughed at it. But you know what? I am convinced today that it's true. It seems like to me almost every single show that that is on today has something to do with sex. Whether it be premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexuality or lesbianism, they are promoting it big time. And what it's saying to our kids is, it's okay. This is cool. It's acceptable. And if you're married and in a relationship that's not going very well, there's somebody out there that's going to bring pleasure to your life. So just go and enjoy it and have a good time. What they don't show is the result of that kind of lifestyle. Teenage pregnancy. AIDS. 
sexually transmitted disease, broken homes, children who are crushed, relationships destroyed, lives that are scarred, that can never be repaired. That's the reality of it. That's what the world is trying to do to your family. Destroy it. That's not from God. God doesn't set those traps. God's your friend, not your enemy. Every commercial that I see on TV these days, almost every is about alcohol, drinking. Ooh, it's fun to drink. It's cool to drink. Have yourself a cold one and a good time. Let's drink a little whiskey. Because real men drink whiskey. It doesn't show the flip side of it. It doesn't show the life that has been ruined by alcoholism. The families that have been destroyed and torn up. Understand, church, listen to me. I'm, I'm not just preaching mean to you this morning because I feel like it. This is a warning from God. The world is not your friend. The world is trying to destroy your life and your family. These traps are not from God. They're from the devil. The second warning is that these allurements are temporary. Verse 17 goes on to say, And the world is passing away. That is, the things this world offers are passing. They don't last. They don't satisfy the longings of your heart. They can't. All the world offers are cheap synthetic substitutes. Oh, they gratify for a moment. Let me tell you, if sinning weren't fun, nobody would be doing it. Come on. I mean, the devil makes it pleasurable. It's fun. Whoopee! <laughs> but it doesn't last. It soon fades. It's gone. It can't satisfy what we need most in our life. Why? This world is passing away. And the lust thereof. So that brings me to the end of the sermon. And you say, <laughs> Amen. Boy, I'm ready for this one to end. This passage ends by giving us one way to live. Listen to it, verse 17. But he who does the will of God abides forever. You compare and contrast that to what it just said. The world is passing away. The lust of the world are passing away. They're not going to last. But he who does the will of God will abide forever. <laughs> Man, what a great deal. Thank you, Jesus. You know? We, we may not enjoy all the pleasures <laughs> that the world thinks they're enjoying, but you know what? Our life just gets better and better and better and better until it's the best. We abide forever. So you might be asking, preacher, how do I do that? How, how do I live God's will for my life? Well, let me end today's sermon by suggesting a simple fourfold strategy for doing the will of God in your life. All right, here it is. Very simple. If you want to do what this passage says and live this kind of life, here's what you need to do. Number one, you've got to take a stand. Just put your foot down, man. Take a stand. Determine once and for all that you're going to follow Jesus Christ. Like Joshua and Daniel and the three Hebrew children. You need to resolve to follow Him now. For this is the key to all other good decisions that you will make in your life. It's to make this one. Because this is the most 
foundational decision we can make. I'm going to live for Jesus. I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to live by the Bible. No matter what anyone else does or says or thinks, this is the way I'm going to live. Period. And leave no room for compromise. You decide that you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Right before I came out to preach the first service, 9 o'clock, I, I had a thought of, of something that goes along with this. I've read this to you a couple of times, I know. It, it, it is attached to me through a, a dear friend named Don Guthrie. Uh, some of you know that name. Don was a, uh, he was a church builder. Dear friend of mine, we went to Hillsdale together. Don started a church in Hera, Oklahoma. He started the church in Plano, Texas that I fo followed him in and pastored. He started a church in, in uh, Hot Springs. Don was driving from Hot Springs to uh, Conway for a preacher's meeting at the state office. Had a massive heart attack. Died way too early. Doug Little read this at Don's funeral. He said this was Don's motto in life. Don didn't write this, but I'm telling you, if you knew Don Guthrie, you knew that this was him. It says, I am a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is sure. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, chintzy giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, or even popularity. I now live by presence. I lean by faith, love by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. My pace is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few. But my guide is reliable. And my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, deterred, lured away, turned back, diluted, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the adversary, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go until heaven calls, give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until He comes. And when He comes to get His own, He will have no problem in recognizing me, for my colors are sure. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. And dear church, if you're going to live the will of God, and if you're going to overcome the world, you have got to take a stand. Don't straddle the fence. Take a stand. This is the way I'm going to live life. And as for me and my house, men, listen to me. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Number two, you need to build a fence. 
once you take a stand for Christ, you, you've got to begin living as this passage tells us to. And, and that means that you have to build some fences in your life to separate yourself from the world and its temptation. The Bible says, come out from among them and be ye separate. So we have to erect boundaries between ourselves and the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And I'm speaking in very practical terms. We have to build fences in various areas of our behavior. It might involve fences to prevent us to going to places that we don't need to go to. There are some places in Fort Smith you just don't need to walk through the doors to. There are some restaurants you don't need to go into. You say, oh, you're meddling now. Well, I mean, it's the truth. You need to build some fences to prevent you from watching some of the movies you've been watching. Some of the TV shows that you've been watching. You need to build some fences to keep you from some of the people you've been hanging out with because quite frankly, all they've been doing is dragging you down. Now church, listen to me. God loves people and so do we. This church must love people. I have never preached, nor I do, do I believe that we need to establish some free will Baptist monastery here and never associate and never rub shoulders with the people of this world. Quite contrary to that, we need to reach out in love and win them to Christ. That means developing relationships. That means investing time. But what it doesn't mean is that your best friends are sinners. Hey, understand that. Your best friends need to be believers, not sinners. And so you need to build some fences there with the people you hang with. You, you, need, to, you need to build some fences what you look at on your computer screen. These are issues of personal purity that we have to think through for ourselves. Teenagers, let me talk directly to you. You need to do this before you go on your very first date. You need to build those fences and decide, you know what? This is not acceptable behavior for me because I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And after you build those fences, you just got to stand firm. So we have to be stand takers and fence builders. Number three, you need to find a closet. I had written that, and then for the first time I said it at 9 o'clock. And I thought it kind of funny. When our world is talking about coming out of the closet, I'm telling you to go into the closet. Okay? Matthew chapter 6, Jesus told us to go into a quiet room and close the door behind us so that we could nourish ourselves in the presence of God through prayer and Bible study. If you're going to remain pure in an unholy world, you are going to have to perform spiritual maintenance on your soul every day. Recently I read an article about a, a newspaper columnist named Rosemary Smith who, who wrote that when she needed cheering up, she would read her paper towels. Her favorite brand of paper towels came with imprinted with sayings and jokes and proverbs. Well, church, we all need inspiration for life, but I think we need a better source than paper towels. 
We need to shut ourselves into a room every day with some peace and quiet and a little time for personal renewal and replenishment. We've got to feed our faith. There's an old song that says, Take time to be holy. The world rushes on. And while many of us would fight to defend the words of that song, we are alien to them. Because we just don't take the time. But we must. Finally, number four, we need to strike a match. You see, when we take a stand for Christ and build a fence in our life and learn to spend time with Christ, the natural outcropping of this is that we go into the fire-starting business. We become sanctified fire starters. Now, if we went around dropping matches everywhere in Fort Smith, starting fires in a literal sense, we would be arrested for arson and thrown into prison. And so I'm not advocating that. But in a spiritual sense, that is exactly what we're supposed to be doing. Recently, I thought of myself not as a matchmaker, but as a match dropper. Just to go around every day, wherever I go, striking spiritual matches. You say, well, I don't get this, preacher. What are you talking about? Well, the Bible says this world is a dark, dark place. And we have been called to be the light of the world. You say, you know what? I need to go around striking those matches, lighting that light and letting my light for Jesus shine. We do that through our words and our deeds, through literature and invitation, by our sermons and services, by our ministries, and by our very lives and attitudes. So in 2015, my admonition to you, church, is this. Take a stand. Build a fence. Close a door. And strike a match. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not of the Father, it is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Heavenly Father, would you please speak this truth into our hearts. And Lord, if there is someone in this room who needs to come and trust you today as Savior and Lord of their life, may they come and be saved and receive forgiveness of sin. Lord, if there is a Christian here today who has allowed the world to saturate their life and to leak into their soul, I pray, dear Lord, that they would come today and confess 1 John 1, 9 confess their sins and know that You are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us and help them, dear Lord, today to take that stand to live for You. Lord, for all of us in this room, may we resolve today that in 2015 we are going to live for God. Like never before in our life, we're going to live for God. Help us to come today to the altar and, and make that commitment to You. Presenting our bodies as living sacrifices to You. Lord, You know the needs that are in this room and I know that You can meet them. So as, as people just reach out to You today, would You touch their lives and heal their souls? Lord, for those...